This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. On the line with us from Toronto is Doug Hoyes. Uh, He's the co-founder of Hoyes Michaelos & Associates, one of Canada's largest personal insolvency firms. Uh, The topic for this segment is, um, are not-for-profit credit counselors really just collection agents? And... um, I know I can just speak from experience, and then I'll let you guys go. Uh, I was shocked. Mm-hmm. I was shocked at what I've learned uh, over the time that I've spent with Blair doing this show, Doug. So let's get right started um, at the beginning and define some of these terms. Yeah, so I, I'm so thrilled, Elaine, to have to have Doug here to be talking about this topic because I think it's something that folks just don't know. We're very much, you know, we believe a lot of the branding and advertising that we see, and I think on today's show we want to kind of delve below that. When you see an not-for-profit credit counselor, what are you actually getting? Um, and I think we'll, we'll correct some misconceptions as well. Um, so, Doug, I wonder if we can just ask you first, you know, let's define the term. What do we mean when we talk about a not-for-profit credit counselor? Well, I mean, a credit counselor is someone gives, who gives advice about credit, I guess, a counselor. And not-for-profit means at the end of the day, the agency isn't turning a profit. And really, and what I hear is they're kind of doing it out of the goodness of their heart. Well, and and uh, I'm not going to paint anyone with a broad brush here because I have worked with many not-for-profit credit counselors over the last 20 or 30 years. Yeah. And most of them are fantastic people. Lovely. And it, it, it has been great in my career to be able to, you know, someone comes into my office and what they really need is some help with budgeting, with, uh, you know, how to save money, uh, you know, very tangible, practical things. And I'm happy to give that advice, but my area of expertise is more on the legal side with consumer proposals, bankruptcy law, all that kind of stuff. And so I am more than happy to refer them to someone who is much more expert than I in that, you know, those basic money management types of things. So I'm actually a very big supporter of not-for-profit credit counseling, provided that's what they're doing. They're meeting with someone in person and giving them practical advice. So I'm a big believer in that. Now, I mean, I think what, what you guys are getting at with your question to me is, okay, well, isn't that what they do? And the answer is every single one of us has to make a living, mm-hmm. okay? I do not work for free. My company, Hoys Michaelis, is a corporation. It's a for-profit business. I'm pretty sure Sands & Associates is also a profit-making enterprise. That's There's correct. nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm very open and upfront with my clients. Yes, this is a business you've come into. My fees, what I get paid when I do a consumer proposal or a bankruptcy, are regulated by the federal government. So I can't just decide what I'm going to charge you. It is set by the government. I get a certain percentage of what is in the pot. That's how it works. Every licensed insolvency trustee gets paid exactly the same for the exact same file. So let me get that out of the way first. I'm not saying here I'm some, you know, not-for-profit guy myself. No, I'm a business. I I make no bones about that. 
how then do I get paid? Well, when you do a proposal, I'm getting a percentage of what's being paid out to the creditors. How does a credit counselor get paid when you go in there and talk to them about budgeting? Well, they might charge you a, a fee, you know, a certain amount per hour, or perhaps they're getting funding from, you know, the United Way or other, you know, charitable donations. Fantastic. That's great. But that's and, and not Doug, where do you, the... Do you, see yep, that mo- do you see that model very often? Because the way we're describing things, I don't think anybody could be opposed to, you know, a community-based organization um, that provides, you know, good counseling at little to no charge. But I don't see that model very often, definitely not in well, Vancouver. That's, that's the problem. And that's mm. the problem. That Unfortunately, that's a very hard model to, to make successful because as a not-for-profit credit counseling agency, you have to pay the rent, you have to pay your staff. How can you do that if the people you're helping don't have any money? So what they have done over you know the years is they have also done other things to generate cash flow, one of them being debt management plans. And so in a debt management plan, they have an arrangement with each of the big banks and credit card companies that if you agree to pay back your debts in full, the big bank will agree to give you a break on the interest and in return turn, the credit counseling agency is paid a fee for doing that. So um, they've always called it a fair share contribution or something like that. And often it's in the range of, you know, 15 to 20% of the money that goes back to the big bank. So that's how they generate a lot of their funding. Now, again, there's nothing wrong with that. You're doing a job, you should get paid for it. Um, I think it's key, though, that when you go to a credit counselor, you understand specifically what they're doing. And you should also understand specifically what a licensed insolvency trustee is doing. Who is paying you? How do you get paid? What's your incentive for, for doing what you're doing? And, I mean, you should ask that of every professional you're dealing with. Uh, how, am I, how am I getting paid? Oh, I bought these mutual funds and I didn't have to pay my advisor anything. Yeah, that's because the fees are buried there. And I think that's my main point. The fees are often not completely visible. And as a result, you don't know who you're paying, what you're paying for, and therefore whose side they're on when you're uh, engaging that professional. Now, as a credit counselor, uh, is it uh, uh, is it on them to tell you when you ask that question how they are being funded? Yes, but it's on you to ask the question. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I like coming on your show because we can put these questions in people's mind. I have no problem at all when someone sits in my desk and says, sits at my desk and says, "Hey, how are you getting paid? What's in it for you?" Right. I'm, I'm more than happy to answer that question. My concern is that some of these big agencies have made it sound like, well, we're not for profit, you know, we're, we're here for the good of humanity. Oh, by the way, all of our funding comes from the banks, or a vast majority of our funding comes from the banks. Okay, well, if the vast majority of your funding comes from the banks, then doesn't that mean you are somewhat beholden to what the banks want you to do? Absolutely. So if, if I'm a <laughs> yeah. somewhat, okay, you know, I'm, I'm couching my words here. I don't want you getting sued You're here, Claire. You're being very diplomatic. Yeah, and, and so if I'm going to run a seminar about how to use credit cards, am I going to stand up there and say to people, you know what, you shouldn't use them? because the interest rate is really high and they're maybe not a great deal for borrowing? Well, no, because my funding is coming from a big bank. I may be a little reluctant to say that. Sure. So I think you have to know how someone is getting paid. Now, people are going to listen to this and say, yeah, okay, Doug Royce, you're speaking out of both sides of your mouth because it's the bank who's paying you too. 
So, uh, you know, you're, you're criticizing someone but doing the same thing yourself. Well, no. When you no. file a consumer proposal, you're the one writing the checks to me, and I'm distributing that money. In a not-for-profit credit counseling agency that's doing a debt management plan, the bank is actually contributing back to them. It is a, it is a different relationship. And again, our fees are set by the government, so there is no bias here. I'm not the one who's determining what I'm getting paid. Okay. And, and Doug, we wanted to talk about how credit counselors might be akin to collection agents. And so let's spend a minute, you know, what's a collection agent? You know, for my simple mind and obviously being in the industry here, you know, a bank hires a collection agency to get the money back from you to collect on the debt. So what, yeah, what would be your it's definition? Someone who, it's someone who collects debt on behalf of someone else. Mm-hmm. And so simple as that. what's the similarity there between a credit counselor and a collection agent? Well, I mean, in Ontario, and I believe it's the same in British Columbia, a someone doing a debt management plan has to be registered under the Collection Agencies Act or whatever it's called in, in each individual prov- uh, province. So legally, they are collecting debts. They are debt collectors. Now, they're not the same as a collection agency. I mean, let, let's not you know, overstate the case that, uh, you know, the, the guy who's collecting that old cell phone bill and is harassing you 15 times a day and is threatening to garnish your wages, that's not the same as a not-for-profit credit counselor. But they are collecting the money and then forwarding it on to the banks. As opposed to in a consumer proposal where we are making a settlement with the banks and remitting to them the net amount. So in a debt management plan, you're paying back 100 cents on the dollar. There's no negotiating to be done, whereas in a consumer proposal, it's in most cases much less than 100 cents on the dollar. So I think that's where the the distinction lies. And Doug, you mentioned some of the different provincial legislations, and I have to tell you, BC is completely, from my perspective, asleep at the switch here, um, because I was just just flabbergasted when I saw Ontario's consumer protection or consumer registries there, which say, you know, if you want to see if someone's a collection agency, you basically put in the name, there's a registry, and you can figure it out. Um, and any credit counseling firm that you see, even BC-based organizations that operate in Ontario, they're forced to register as collection agents in Ontario. So that was where I first got the thought about this. I'm like, wow, if they're registered as collection agents, isn't that what they're doing. The province of BC has no such requirement. So if you try to figure out who are the collection agents in BC, you, you won't find that information easily accessible. So the number of clients that I sit down with when I say, you know, um, the advertising that you've seen for not-for-profit credit counselors, just be a little bit careful because of the funding model and the fact that other provinces have caused them to register just based on the conduct of, of what they're doing. So I think it's customers yeah, having their eyes wide open. I totally, totally agree. And again, you hit the nail on the head here, the funding model. The problem is, I think credit counselors perform a very valuable function. And I would love to go back to to the days where they were in person. You could actually meet with them face-to-face. They could help you with your budget, give you all this advice. But the problem is they can't do it because no one's paying for it. And so they have to resort to taking money from the banks that perhaps they would otherwise not like to do. So I would like to see changes at the federal level where we find a way to fund not-for-profit credit counselors who aren't, you know, collecting for the banks, but who are helping individual people. That's what I would like to see. Um, And I think that would be better for everyone. It would certainly be better for the credit counseling agencies, because I think that's what they want to do. They should specialize in education and helping people. But the problem is it costs money to do that. So, I mean, that would be a whole nother show on, on how that could possibly happen. But I think there are ways that funding could be provided to not-for-profit credit counseling agencies to do credit counseling as opposed to simply being debt collectors. The one thing that I was going to, I wanted to ask is 
Are there more of each today than there were 10 years ago? I mean, because you are two guys who are in the business who see what's going on on a regular basis. What do you think? What, what I see, if I'm understanding your question correctly, is in the old days, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, there were a ton of small, locally-based credit counseling agencies. So in every small town in Ontario, in every large town and city, there was a not-for-profit credit counseling agency. I knew the people there. I could send people there for, for counseling. Today, most of those agencies have been absorbed into the three or four big agencies that are almost national in scope. So if you want to talk to a credit counselor, it's much more likely you're going to be talking to someone over the phone and their primary goal is to help you, but also to fund their operations with a debt management plan. And again, I'm painting everyone with the same brush here. There are still lots of credit counselors who will meet with you in person and provide good advice, but they are becoming much larger in scope. And there's a lot more stuff being done over the phone as opposed to face-to-face because that's the only cost-effective way to do it. We've been talking with Doug Hoyes, who's the co-founder of Hoyes Michaelosen Associates, uh, one of Canada's largest personal insolvency firms. Now, you can read, he's on Twitter at Doug Hoyes, also articles, etc. on Huffington Post. I would also say probably YouTube. If you, you've got uh, video, etc. on YouTube as well, Doug? Yep, absolutely. We've got the Hoyes Michaelis channel, and we've also got the Debt Free and 30 channel, which is where I post uh, all of my podcasts, including on topics like we've just been talking about today. Excellent. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. For a- information on any of the services that uh, uh, Sands & Associates looks after, check out their website, sands trustee.com. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So this is one of my favorite segments. We've talked about this before because I think it's really informative. People don't Ugh, not everybody knows this stuff, and mm-hmm. and you wouldn't and you wouldn't know it if you were paying attention to television and newspapers and radio and stuff. You'd go, oh, really? That there's a difference? Mm-hmm. No, yeah, there is. Especially the credit counseling part. So we're talking about credit counseling versus debt consolidation. So I'll stick with your questions, and then I'll and then I'll throw in something <laughs> oh, as we of go. Yeah. And these are probably the top two things that people reach to when they know they've got a problem with their debt. The first thing: can I consolidate? And whether you can or you can't, the second thing is, okay, let me get some credit counseling. So let's talk today about what do those two options really mean? What are the pitfalls, ups and downs, and all arounds on them? Okay, so first one is debt consolidation. Yeah, so what is debt consolidation? Well, quite simply, it's when you put all of your debts together. So you might owe five or six different, you know, whether it's credit cards, lines of credit, student loans, um, payday loans, hopefully not, but different things like that. But whatever debts that you have, instead of making five or six different payments at various interest rates, you consolidate or you put everything together and you make one combined payment that covers all of your debts. Now, the reason why you would typically do that is that the combined payment is typically a lot lower than what you're paying individually because when you do a consolidation, you're getting a loan from a bank and the bank is going to go and pay off all of your other debts. And the idea is the bank's going to charge you a whole lot less interest than you're maybe paying a payday loan uh, or a short-term financing. So, you know, you might be paying 19 to 39% on some of this financing. Uh, Consolidation loan might be 12%. So not nothing, but at least you're saving some money there. Sounds like a bargain, right? Exactly. Um, And you're simplifying your life. You know, you got one payment to manage um, 
as opposed to a bunch of different ones happening. I had a lady in my office yesterday, her NSF fees in the last month were $700. I couldn't believe it. And it was 14 missed payments at $50 a piece. So she just said, you know, yeah, this that holiday pushed my payback and everything was supposed to come out and it bounced. When you got one payment, that typically doesn't happen. So there's some benefits to consolidation there. And I can see how it is the number one thing that people ask you about because it sounds like the, the best choice to make. I'm going to look after this thing. This is how I'm going to do it. Let's put it all together and then go from there. It's kind of a no-brainer. So why doesn't everybody do it? Well, it's pretty difficult to get approved. So it's almost the fact that the people that don't need the consolidation loan are sometimes the only people that could get approved for it. Because typically to consolidate your debt, a bank is going to need to see first off a really strong credit rating, which is is usually a lot of people have that. But secondly, they need to see assets and usually want to put a charge on those assets. So if you've got a house with a ton of equity in it, you'll get a consolidation loan pretty well any day of the week. You'll be able to save money because they know if you don't pay on that debt, they'll put a charge on your house and they'll be able to get their money back that way. Right. If you don't have assets or if your house is already mortgaged to the hilt and there's not a whole lot of equity there, very, very difficult to get a bank to basically take a risk and pay off all of your other debt without them taking any security from you because what's to guarantee that they're actually going to get paid? Got it. So a lot of people come to me and they say the first thing they tried was to consolidate their debt and the bank just couldn't get them to first base. They said without assets, it's just not going to be possible. Okay. So let's talk about credit counseling services and there's two kinds. There's mm-hmm. for profit and not-for-profit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I don't treat them much differently because essentially the, the, the function is the same. So a credit counselor is essentially funded by your creditors and their job is to try to get all the money back from the creditors so to get 100% collection on the debt. But there can be a whole lot of benefits to it. Um, if you're working with a credit counselor, you know, typically they'll consolidate your debts into a single payment, so similar to a consolidation loan. Um, and where we said before, you know, your interest goes from, you know, 30 or 40 down to probably 12. When a credit counselor plan, your interest typically goes to zero. So because this is a negotiation essentially funded on behalf of the banks, the banks are prepared to write off all future interest as long as you will agree to pay them back dollar for dollar what you owe over a period of typically four to five years. It can't be any longer than five years. Okay. So that doesn't sound that bad. Mm -hmm. What are the pitfalls of that? Well, so one thing is to consider, first off, what types of debt can you deal with? And if you're dealing with the government, for example, or payday lenders, neither of those will participate at all with a a credit counseling debt management plan. So if you've got, you know, going to solve half the problem with a, a credit counseling plan, but you've still got these payday lenders and you've still got the government debt, whether it's student loans, income taxes, GST, or whatever, you might feel like you're doing all the right things, but the actual real problem of the government debt is still kind of kicking out there in the wind. So that and, can be a big problem. And it's a super big, important one to pay attention to. That's right. Nothing's going to shut you down quicker than the government because they don't have to hire a lawyer to sue you. They can start freezing your bank accounts. Um, they can start to seize that assets with very little notice to you. Um, And if you're under a credit counseling plan, you don't have any protection. Credit counseling, it's a voluntary agreement by your creditors. Um, That compares completely differently to a consumer proposal that a trustee can do where everything we do is governed by the law and you're absolutely protected. So, and what about the cost between credit counseling and bank consolidation loans? So, similar? No, generally you would expect a consolidation loan is going to cost you a whole lot more because you're paying the interest on it. Sure. Uh, with a credit counseling plan, 
typically the big big savings is that you're going to be saving the interest. Now, what you need to be aware of is there's fees for everything in life. So the credit counseling company is going to add a small fee. Typically, it's obviously going to be a lot less than what your interest is. Um, but then they're also getting paid back by the creditors. So some of their costs are getting defrayed there as well. Okay. Um, the big issue I find with credit counseling plan is if those were the only two options, uh, it's either you consolidate the debt and pay 12% interest, or you do a credit counseling plan, you pay zero interest. Well, you choose credit counseling you know, every day of the week and you'd be happy about that decision. Right. But my challenge is that when folks actually learn more about how a consumer proposal can be better than both options, um, they generally choose to opt for a consumer proposal at the end of the day. So it's all about consumers being more informed. So do you want to go there then to consumer proposal for if you've if you're if you're tuning in and you go well what's that I don't know what that is yeah so what's how good is that well it's great Elaine <laughs> yeah. I know that Blair I know we've been, we've been talking a while <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, but no the way a consumer proposal works is it's similar to a consolidation or even to a credit counseling plan but with some big differences so first off consumer proposal can include everything so there's no carve outs for you know the government or for payday loans if you do a consumer proposal every debt you have is going to be restructured as part of that proceeding, okay, as opposed to some creditors opting out. And that's the beauty of going with a licensed insolvency trustee because they're the only ones that can negotiate that and include the government stuff. That's right, because I can use the law. I can basically force the government to take an agreement if the other creditors want to accept it. And to give you an example, so if you're in a credit counseling situation and let's say you owe $20,000, you owe it to five different people, um, if four of those want the the credit counseling plan, you'll pay the credit counseling plan to four of them and the fifth of them can go and make your life very difficult. They can sue you, harass you, take you to court, all of that. If you're doing a consumer proposal, all I need is 50% by dollar value to say yes. So of those 20,000, as soon as I get more than $10,001 on board, the rest of them, they can yell and scream all they want, but they've got to deal with the trustee. They can't deal with the individual. They can't do anything else whatsoever. But I think the biggest point here, Elaine, is first off, we can get the proposal approved typically, but second off is you actually save a ton of money. So for anyone that I've ever sat down with, if we go through, you know, debt consolidation, here's the payment. Oh, it seems pretty, pretty expensive, but it's better than what you're doing now. And then we go to credit counseling. Okay, we're just paying back the principal, doing it over five years, a bit tight, but maybe we can do it. A consumer proposal is often half or a third, maybe a quarter of what a credit counseling plan would be. So there's massive savings to the individual and to the household. And the final kicker is what everyone's concerned about is their credit rating and the impact's the same for doing a credit counseling plan as opposed to a consumer proposal. And at the end of the day, you're done. So Mm -hmm. typically it goes for how long? A consumer proposal will go maximum of five years, but you can pay it off as soon as you're able to. Right, and then and then you're done, and everybody's looked after. Yeah. Now, one thing we haven't touched on is just with the consolidation loan. If you're really focused, you never want to hurt your credit at all. Consolidation loan is what's going to do it because all you're doing, you're incurring more debt, you're paying it back. If you don't miss payments, your credit rating is going to be just fine. If you're doing either a credit counseling plan or a consumer proposal, both of those will be detrimental to your credit, but it's a short-term hit for a long-term gain. Now, if I wasn't sure about which one I should go to or or use, Mm -hmm. can I still come and see you and ask? Absolutely. Yeah, it's a free consultation. It's all of our listeners would know. And my job is to explain all of the options. If you're a great candidate for debt consolidation, because you've got a home with a ton of equity, I'll help you try to make that happen. I'll try to make a connection, you know, to a bank or a mortgage broker or whatever. Uh, If it's not going to work for you, then we'll look at the other options. Go to the website, sands-trustee.com or give them a call, 1-800-661-3030. Book that consultation as well as to find an office near you. You're listening to Dollars and Cents.
Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. For information on any of the services we've talked about on the show, go to the website sands-trustee.com or you can give them a call at 1-800-661-3030 for that consultation and to find an office near you. In studio with us is Cody Reedman. He's an insolvency restructuring and litigation lawyer, has a sole sole practitioner in Vancouver at Reedman Law. He's a grad of U of Vic, Faculty of Law, and was called to the bar in 2016 after articling uh, with a well-respected insolvency lawyer in the Tri-City areas, uh, Tri-Cities area. So you know that insolvency is something that he's really thoughtful about, bankruptcy and insolvency practice. He has them both. He represents and advises folks as well as small and medium-sized businesses in a really wide range of matters, all to do with insolvency legislation. So we're going to start off, Cody, just talking a little bit about uh, your practice uh, and when should clients reach out to you. And I want just to let the folks know before we get any further, we're going to be talking about student loans and all the law that's around student loans for folks uh, before uh, as we get as we get through after we hear about your practice. Great, thank you. Uh, and so I should probably start with saying this is an area that is uh, I find personally interesting. I wasn't a student that long ago, so I, I certainly know what it's like to incur those uh, government student loans and those lines of credit in order to uh, to go through post secondary. So in terms of uh, my practice. Um, I'm an insolvency lawyer. Typically, with respect to government student loans, uh, most of the time people will see me once, uh, one of two times, either prior to embarking on an insolvency event, such as a proposal or an assignment into bankruptcy. They might want to ask some questions about their government student loans or their loans in general, and whether there's going to they would be included in such a proceeding or any uh, problems that that might have uh, for, say, a bankruptcy. The second time people will contact me is once their consumer proposal or bankruptcy is concluded, and they find out that their government student loans survive, and they want to try to make arrangements. Got it. Because we know about that. We know they can survive. Mm-hmm. And it's all that seven years. That seems to be the key point. Yeah, you're, you're completely on there, Elena. And oh, maybe, good. maybe Cody, yeah. No, you, again, the longer we do this, you're going to be a trustee alongside me, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, that's yeah. going to happen. But, but Cody, can we talk about the, the legal background of student loans? Because there's a clause in the Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act, and it really struck me as weird. There's a few debts that, you know, will survive a bankruptcy. You know, there's things like child support, alimony, spousal support, you know, money owing for things stolen and fraud, all these things where it's very logical, and there's also student loans. So it strikes me as a bit odd. This is one category of debt where we've created a special status. Can you talk about that? Absolutely. And so that's dealing with the Bankruptcy Insolvency Act of of what Parliament decided, which are serious debts that ought to survive, and lumped in there with all the debts that you mentioned, you know, debts from fraud or, uh, you know, fines from a court is student loans, and it seems out of place. Now, there's a caveat to that, which is a timing rule, uh, which is that a student loan can be included in either consumer proposal, Division One proposal, or bankruptcy, but uh, the person needs to wait from seven years from the time that they cease to be a student in order to have that included. Hmm. 
Okay, yeah. so if I've graduated the next day, I'm out of out of school. I obviously can't file a bankruptcy or a proposal. Then at four years out of school, I can't do that. It's got to be the seven year period. Whatever I do before, then the loan's going to follow me after the proceeding is over. Is that a, a way to explain it? Yeah, that's yeah. a way to proceed it. And then mm-hmm. to just sharpen that a little bit, uh, there was a decision uh, a few years ago called Re Mallory in this province that said if you have multiple student loans, the time that you cease to be student runs from the last student loan. Uh, uh-huh. Because before, you used to be in a position where you could, say, do a bankruptcy or consumer proposal. And if the loans were more than seven years old, you could discharge the older loans, but then you can have the newer loans survive and you would uh, be able to make arrangements with that. But that's no longer the case. So, for example, somebody went to school in, you know, 1977, let, let's pick it, and, and they've still got a student loan that they're paying off. Not sure how that would work. but then a they long would, time that'd ago. That would be a long time. They became a doctor, a PhD, <laughs> who knows. Uh, but at the end of the day, um, two years ago, they decide they want to go back to university, take a few courses to upgrade, and then something terrible happens. They have to file a bankruptcy or a proposal. So are you saying, Cody, that that two-year, um, essentially the classes that they took two years ago might have just removed their ability to deal with that very old student loan because it's all going to be treated as one period. Is that right? Uh, that's right. Mm. And, and I should put, uh, again, a little, uh, just one other uh, disclaimer there, which is that, you know, this, it, we're assuming that they're taking out uh, additional government student loans to pay mm. for those studies. Oh, okay. So if they were to go back to school but not take a student loan, they're generally that seven-year clock only relates to when you had a student loan. Well, that's a gray area. That's a gray right? area, okay. Uh, and so mm. right now, the uh, there's a court decision, I believe, out of Ontario that's, that states that the only logical point is the seven-years or five-year mark resets uh, from the last time the person incurred a government student loan. Now, the problem is, is that uh, we don't really have any clarity if you take a course and you pay for it out of pocket or if you get scholarships and bursaries to pay for those studies, does that is that sufficient enough to reset it? Mm. Uh, the legislation is is not clear on that, and neither are the cases in British Columbia. Hmm. So it used to be more clear until the, the decision you were mentioning then. Before it was, you know, if you had an old loan, you could discharge the old loan, and if you had a new loan, that might survive, but now there's one period. That's So correct. that's important for, for folks to know, especially they've just recently been back to school, would be to talk to a trustee or to talk to a counsel like yourself, and just to figure out what are the options there. And, and that's absolutely right. Mm-hmm. It, I was just going to ask because we had talked about st- we've talked about student loans a lot on this show. So if I'm as long as I've stopped paying on my student loan, mm-hmm. that's when the clock starts ticking the seven years. Am I right oh, about no. that? No, no, it's from when you stopped being a student. Just stop being a student. So mm-hmm. I could pay, be paying all mm-hmm. the way through those seven years, and then decide I need to file for a consumer proposal. Right. And okay. and so there's sometimes some really sad cases that that I've seen where people have miscalculated when they stop being a student and they've missed the, those seven years by one month or two months or three months as the case may be. And mm-hmm. had they actually pulled the transcripts when they ceased to be a student, then those would have been survived if they just uh, hung on just a little bit further. Okay, got it. So, so it's a two, really- two-part question. What can they do in that yeah. situation and how should they avoid being in that situation? You mentioned pulling the transcripts, but I guess first off, they're in that situation. They filed a bankruptcy. They thought the student loans were included and they're not. Right. Sounds like a pretty sad outcome. It, it is a sad outcome. And in that situation, there are some options that a person might have. 
But generally what happens is the person will then go through the insolvency proceeding and conclude it, whether it's getting their discharge from bankruptcy, completing a consumer proposal, and then from there um, speaking to a lawyer about making a – and seeing if they're ineligible for making a hardship application. Oh, okay. And so – and a hardship application, it sounds like it's a paper application, but really it's a hardship application to court under the Bankruptcy mm. Insolvency Act under the same insolvency proceeding. Okay, so if someone, they filed for bankruptcy, they thought it had been seven years, but it had really been five and a half or six and a half or whatever, they finish the bankruptcy and they can make an application to court. Now, do they need counsel to do that? Is it typically advisable? It's typically advisable to have counsel, but it, it can be challenging for people who are already struggling with their uh, their student loans to retain counsel to make these applications. Mm-hmm. But people are certainly well advised to consult a lawyer or trustee ab- mm-hmm. about some of the challenges that they might have when making those applications. Right. Okay. And I know, Cody, you brought a couple of cases for us to to talk about. I wonder if we can talk about a a couple of specifics of things that you've seen with recent student loan situations. Uh, Yes, absolutely. And so I had a chance to review some of the more recent cases uh, in this matter. And of course, bankruptcy legislation is federal, which means it's Canada-wide. I had a chance to review the a Nova Scotia decision, a 2019 decision of Ree McCrossin, which is a decision uh, involving somebody who was making a hardship application so they could actually return to their studies. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, the, the reason that they wanted re- relief from their government student loans was, was simply uh, they were intending to go back to school and they couldn't obtain more loans until uh, their existing loans were dealt with. Um, the court, in terms of making these sorts of applications, really, uh, the court needs to be satisfied of two, a two-step test. Number one, has the bankrupt acted in good faith in connection with the bankrupt's liabilities under the debt? And number two, has the bankrupt and will continue to experience financial difficulty to such an extent the bankrupt will be unable to pay the debt? So really there's two parts, uh, which is that someone needs to act in good faith in connection with their government student loans and that they'll continue to experience financial difficulty. That's not a ton of guidance. And Mm. so the courts have filled in what that means over time. And often it's very, it's much easier to meet the good faith test. These are the sort of considerations are, did people actually take the money and use it to fund their studies? Uh, if somebody took the money and used it for a trip to Europe, uh, mm, they're not they're, they're mm. going to pass that uh, step of the test. And so the court will look at the efforts of the person made uh, to apply for repayment assistance, uh, that the, any voluntary payments towards uh, their government student loans, uh, and then they, the court has a wide discretion to take into account other factors. Now, the second part, and this is the tricky one on student loan hardship applications, is whether the person will continue to experience hardship. And the courts will consider generally uh, – two parts, which is that the person will not only is experiencing hardship right now, but will they continue to experience hardship into the future? And that's that's a challenging analysis. Mm. And so in terms of experiencing uh, continuing hardship, and uh, that's where uh, typically these decisions are uh, Emphasize because the court is going to have to review not only the person's situation right now. They've had the benefit of going to school. You know, their situation is probably very, fairly dire or it's going to look very bad on paper. But how is it going to look, say, 5, 10, 15 years from now? And how does the court grapple with that? Hmm. And so uh, the court um, 
in this particular decision, uh, looked at a number of different factors, including that, you know, hypothetically, if uh, the, the bankrupt or the former bankrupt was having to make surplus income payments, how long would it take to, to use those surplus income payments to pay down uh, the outstanding balance on the government student loans? And the court in that case found that based on an analysis of the, the bankrupt's uh, income and expense sheets that they would have either no or very little surplus income payable. And they said, well, on its face, uh, there would be less money that a bankrupt could put towards uh, paying off that government student loan. So hardship is made out in, into the future. Oh, and so they were granted the, the discharge. Then. Yeah. So they, in that case, they were, in fact, granted uh, relief uh, from their government student loans uh, so that they can continue. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, the court uh, seemed to be quite pleased with the fact that that the person making the application was upfront about the intended purposes, that mm-hmm. they wanted to better their situation by returning to study uh, to their studies so that they could have a, a higher paying job. And I think, in fact, uh, that makes sense with the policy rationale involved with these sorts of matters, which is that, you know, we want people to be rehabilitated by the insolvency process. Excellent. If any of this is resonating with you and you want some assistance with student loan uh, situation that Cody has sort of uh, talked about or, or it relates to you, check out the website. It's readmanlaw.com. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So I think this is a really interesting segment because I bet that you get a lot of questions around that or people worried about that, about this specific issue. And that is, if I'm married and my spouse gets into financial trouble how does it impact me? Mm-hmm. And is it just for bankruptcy, or is it is it bankruptcy and consumer um, proposal? Yeah, consumer proposals. Well, it's, it's even bigger than that. It's there's this huge misconception. I see it every day, and I don't fault anyone for it because no one's really telling you the story. But the misconception is when you marry somebody or you become common law that suddenly you share everything. You right. share assets, you share debts, um, and you see couples quite often make the wrong decision for them individually um, because they think everything is pooled. And what I mean by that is one person in a marriage has all the assets, the other person has a lot of debt, and they think, well, I'd have to give up these assets to pay the person's debt anyway, so let's just do that now. And then the couple as a whole ended up worse off. They don't have assets, they also don't have debt, but realistically, the person who had the debt could have dealt with their issue without impacting at all the other party. Where did we get that idea that you're, if you're in, you're in and you, you yeah. have to suck it all up? You know, I don't know, but I remember every time that I was growing up, you know, people said, you marry somebody, you marry their debt. As we were going through school, you know, we always joked, oh, student loan here, student loan when we get married, we're both in bad shape. It doesn't really matter. Yeah. Um, so I think it's just something in kind of pop culture. Um, but the reality is, Elaine, there is no legal basis. Read that zero, no legal basis that if one husband or wife owns um, owes a debt that the other spouse can ever be collected from. There's nothing just by virtue of marriage or cohabitation that creates that right. The only way a spouse is ever responsible for another spouse's debt is if they've agreed to be responsible by co-signing after the fact or by incurring the debt together. There's no automatic right that happens just based on a relationship. And that's huge. Most people, they do a double take. They're like, what? You mean I got married and my wife owes MasterCard? MasterCard can't come after me at all? 
yeah, that's, that's exactly what I'm telling you, that the legal right of the collector is just to the person that owes the debt, not to their spouse or to their next of kin. So how does that impact you as a licensed insolvency trustee when the spouse that has the big debt now comes to you and says, okay, I'm ready to deal with this thing. Help mm-hmm. me out. How do we do this and, and, and go through the steps? Yeah, well, so in, in some cases, um, you know, and this is the best case is when couples come together and they're completely open about their situation. You know, both spouses know that one person has got the debt problem. They're going to work on it together. That's not always the case. You know, sometimes spouses come in and they've been hiding their debt problem for years from their other other member of the household and they're worried, is this person ever going to find out about it? Um, The answer is in both of those situations, it's the individual's issue to solve. So if I'm sitting down with a couple, husband and wife, and say the husband's got the debt problem, I'll be speaking mostly to him, explaining, you know, here's how a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal is going to get you out of of debt. Um, And always the question will be, well, how is this going to impact my spouse? How is it going to impact his or her credit rating or his or her finances? And the answer, again, it's very, very simple, is that there's no impact. One person filing bankruptcy, zero impact on the credit rating of the other person, zero impact on the finances of the other person. And does that include if we both have uh, our names on the property that we own, the home that we own, the cars that we own? Like, Mm -hmm. how does, because that, does it get muddled then? It can. So, um, Again, we're talking about if someone's got their debt that's separate now, uh, if they've got their assets that are separate, this is interesting too. So let's say that someone is getting married and one person owns the house and they keep it, let's say it's in the wife's name and they get married. The husband has a whole lot of debt. Okay. Now the husband, he could deal with his debts without having to compromise anything about the house because he's never owned that asset. Right. He's never been entitled to it. And just by becoming married doesn't automatically give his creditors a right to get half the house. Okay. Now, what's interesting, I don't mean to take it too complicated here, but common law or whatever, uh, the criminal code um, law does protect this person that if they were to break up, if the family were to break up, that the husband or wife who didn't own the house could make a claim for basically half of the increase in the house under the Family Law Family Relations Act. So the person has some rights, but from a creditor point of view, they can never be forced um, to look at their spouse's assets to pay the debts. Okay, and that's if 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 only one person's name is on the property, mm-hmm. then you can't. I can't ask. So let's say it's me that owns everything, yeah. and my husband. Yeah. Okay. Your husband has debt. Your husband can deal with the debt without impacting your property. But if we're now, both signed, if you're both on the property, well, then this person has an asset. So um, let's say it's a house and there's $50,000 of equity that's in the house and there's two people that are untitled. So there's basically a $25,000 asset um, for the person who has a lot of debt. For that person to deal with their debt, they would have to basically either purchase that asset from the bankruptcy estate. So if there's a $25,000 value um, to the equity in the house, whatever they're going to pay back into a bankruptcy has to be at least the value of that equity. Or if they're going to do a proposal, a proposal has to provide for at least that recovery on the debt. So if it's a shared asset, it can be a little bit more difficult. It's not the case that you suddenly have to sell a house for sure. It's actually been probably a couple of years since I've had to sell a house through a bankruptcy. It doesn't happen very often. Um, but if it's a shared asset, it can get a little bit more complicated because creditors do have the right to the one person's aspect of that asset, to their portion of that asset. See, I can't imagine going through a debt situation and trying to resolve it without going to a licensed insolvency trustee. I may a little be a little bit biased here, yeah. but I mean, you know all the ins and outs and all the different scenarios yeah. that can play out and the impact of those scenarios. Well, because I'm making it sound pretty simple, and it is, but people consistently make the wrong decision for the overall couple 
couple because they're pushed that way. They're either pushed that way by a collection agent, maybe it's a well-meaning friend or family member who thinks they know the facts but actually don't. And if a collection agent tells you, well, you know, I know your husband's on title to the house and even though you're not on title, we're going to sue you anyway, we're going to trace the asset. You don't know what's true and what's not. You don't right. know there's no legal basis for that and the person's job is to sound very convincing of what they're doing so people can feel very intimidated and they'll just do what they think they have to do to make the pain go away, which is often treating something like a shared financial responsibility where it really isn't. It's an individual financial responsibility. And especially when we're, we're coming into a situation like you and I were before we knew better that, oh yeah, automatically what's yours is mine and what's mm-hmm. mine is yours and that's all there is to it. Yeah. And that's not the, not always the case. Um, what else should we talk? So what role would the non-bankrupt spouse play in a bankruptcy? So let's say we go down that road. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we've talked a lot about how bankruptcy works, and one of the main things you have to do in a bankruptcy that determines how much you're required to pay back is you have to report the household income to the trustee each month. And the trustee's determining are you low income or not low income, and then that determines you what you have to pay. Um, if you're a non-bankrupt spouse and your husband or wife has filed bankruptcy, you're generally required to give your income information on a monthly basis. So you'd provide you know, a pay stub or some summary of your earnings to the trustee during the bankruptcy, but you're not making any payments. There's nothing that your income suddenly triggers anything that you have to do, but it's part of the trustee understanding the entire financial picture of the individual and trying to set a payment based on that. And if a spouse decided, you know what, I don't want to give the trustee any information, this is not my bankruptcy, nothing that has to do with me, then the trustee can't compel that person to give any information. We can ask for the information. If we don't get it, well, then we just have to do a different calculation to try to assess whether the person's low income or not. But that's really the extent of it. The most successful couples, they would file a bankruptcy, you know, one spouse would support the other in the office, they'd come in for the counseling together, and they'd view it as kind of a team effort. But realistically, it's just going to be one person doing the work and making the payments. And, and it's just, it sounds like it's more of, oh, this is, this is the best way, most beneficial way of doing something versus you have to do it this way. You have mm-hmm. to give up or you have to be, you have to submit everything uh, for the non, for the non debt, for the person who's not in debt, yeah. you know. Oh, yeah, the person who's not in debt or not filing a bankruptcy, they've literally got zero requirements um, right. to do or, or but, share anything with the trustee. But it's helpful if they do. It is, yes. It's absolutely helpful. And um, again, it's part of just the whole be a team, get through it together. Um, and maybe in our last couple of minutes, Elaine, you know, we've yeah, got some, some ideas about, you know, how should you start a, fi- a conversation about finances with your partner? Yeah. Um, because, you know, I do a lot of kind of gentle nudging of my clients saying, you know what, after this meeting, you should go home, tell your your husband or your wife what we talked about, well, that's you know, be transparent about the budget. And some people do and some people people don't. But, you know, the number one recommendation um, is just to communicate about finances, you know, and you don't want to do this as you're heading out the door of the grocery store to dinner. You need to set some time aside. And, you know, maybe it's once a month, you just decide to check in on all the accounts. How is the spending? Are we going up or down? Are we doing well? Uh, Just 30 minutes invested on a monthly basis is going to do wonders for a couple sharing their finances openly. And that's big. That I can see how that would be big and scary for some folks. Uh, but that's that's the best advice that you've got uh, for that. Communicate. Yeah. Wow. Tell and, them. Yeah. And the last point here, and we yes. call this a little bit, you know, jokingly, but share some financial in- intimacy. And what I mean by that is if you're to the point where you're in a very serious relationship and definitely if you're married, both, go and get your credit reports, sit down, review them both together. You can do it for free once a year. Uh, if you really want to know what's under the under the cover, so to speak, <laughs> get the credit report and then you'll both know what's going on. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin. You've been listening to Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt.
The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone. Like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.